Past, Present, Future Live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you an interview with Joey Burns of Calexico. Over the past 20 years, Calexico's combination of Tex-Mex, indie rock, jazz, surf, and more has combined to create a unique sound sometimes called Desert Noir. Joey and his bandmate John Convertino first broke through with The Black Light in 1998 and were soon on tour with Pavement and other heroes of theirs. Over the years, they've collaborated with Sam Beam of Iron and Wine on two albums, including the 2019 release, Years to Burn. We talked about the origin and evolution of their sound, how Joey and John started collaborating with a house full of instruments, and how the live experience has evolved for Calexico. After the interview, you'll hear a unique performance by Joey and his bandmate Sergio. They'll play Cumbia de Dande, Hear the Bells, and Service and Repair. And there's a Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes. And now a quick word about Sunset Lake CBD, our great sponsor. I've talked about them a lot. I eat their gummies every day. It keeps me calm in this chaotic world. You can get 15% off your first order when you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. Thanks, Sunset Lake CBD. Now here's the interview with Joey Burns of Calexico. All right, I'm here with Joey from Calexico. Hi, Joey. Hey, RJ. How's it going? It's going well. I'm glad that uh, we got to talk a little bit before we started recording because we don't always get to do that, and now we know that we both have twins. That's right. We're united. <laughs> We're united in some way. Um, uh, there's so much to talk about with you because you guys have been making music for so long, and there's, there's a lot of cool stories and, and a lot of questions I want to ask, but I have to go all the way back to the beginning to start and ask if you have an early musical memory or an earliest musical memory. Sure. My favorite earliest musical memory is my mom playing piano and my two older brothers and my younger sister just sitting around hearing her and watching her play and either singing along with or just absorbing the sound of her voice and the sound of the piano and loving each and every moment. Wow. That's cool. Was she pretty musical? Like, was she pretty advanced? Was she like a very professionally trained pianist sort of thing? No, not not professionally trained, but she's got a killer voice. I mean, she sounds so good. It's and she knows it too, which is kind of just makes it hard. And I remember asking her, I go, "How do you, how do you sing? You know, like, can you teach me?" She goes, "Well, you know, you got to sing from your diaphragm." I'm like, "Well, what's that? <laughs> Where is it?" And I still, I mean, I don't sing with my diaphragm unless I'm singing low volume and low pitch. Uh, so I usually every tour, I kind of strain my voice after the first couple of days and then I find my footing and then I try to be really smart and be healthy as possible. But, you know, she, uh, she is a great singer and she can read music and every now and then she can make up a little song and, and we actually would, you know, kind of improvise little tunes or I would play cello or, or bowed bass along with her or guitar. And, and one of the earliest memories I have was, um, her playing a song called All the Pretty Horses, which is a lullaby from South Carolina. And it was sort of like a simple adaptation of it. And then the the nightmare uh, song that she would do would be like Stairway to Heaven. She could, our, 
Led Zeppelin, you know, songbook out and just butcher one of those songs. And <laughs> we ran fast. <laughs> so it sounds like your family was pretty musical. Did you grow up playing a lot of instruments and just like, was that just part of your life? Yeah, it was. I, my two older brothers had an electric guitar, an acoustic guitar, electric bass. I wanted a drum set. My parents said no. One of my grandparents said, well, I'll get one for him. <laughs> they both looked at her and they said, no drum set. No. Wow. So I borrowed, I borrowed one for a while. I was part of the, one of the percussionists all the way up until about ninth grade. And then I decided, well, I'll just, I'll play bass. And I took some lessons and then I joined the, my high school jazz band. And I really enjoyed that. That's cool. And you grew up in Canada. Well, I was born in Canada, but we, Right after I was born, basically, um, we moved to Southern California. Okay, so you grew up in Southern California. And is that when you started hearing the kind of music that that you would end up playing in your bands? Or were you influenced by a variety of music when you were growing up? Because it sounds like your parents were big influenced, or your mom was. But did you discover a bunch of music on your own that was different and kind of separate from that? Yeah, you know, I had my parents, their vinyl collection, their records were mostly from the 50s and maybe the early 60s. And there was one Beatles record. Uh, I should take that back. There was two. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of rock. Um, but my older brothers introduced a lot of great music. And my oldest brother, John, was more, um, you know, adventurous and, you know, gave me a cassette of uh, Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom, which is one of my favorite records was really into REM, early REM. So we saw a bunch of shows, um, took me to concerts. My first concert was Kiss at the Forum in 1979. And then I went and saw like Bruce Springsteen on the River Tour in 1980. And, you know, it's a lot of diversity. So that, I think that that kind of helped. And then I think I just my ear was always sort of interested in different sounds and instruments. So during university, you know, I, I bought a used sitar. I had a big crack in it, so it was super cheap. But I mean, still, I was able to get some sounds out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got into Ali Akbar Khan, Ravi Shankar, and, and Zakir Hussain. And just, I've always just had an, a curious ear. Wow, that's amazing. And it seems like you were able to pick up instruments pretty easily, relatively. Yeah, just you know, making it do a little bit of something. And I guess, yeah, that kind of carried over into, you know, trying to play cello a little bit and uh, buying a mandolin or you know, other guitars and, and things, um, and sort of incorporating that into my, my dream, which is a, a thrift shop or a swap meet orchestra. In some ways you did actually create that. <laughs> well, I did. I mean, not alone. I, I had John to help me out. I needed John and well, uh, John was a big influence in that way too. And he well, also yeah, had a, he had a really musical family as well. His, his mom and his dad played accordion and they even had a music school. I do want to go back to the Kiss concert quickly because I interviewed Alex Skolnick for this show who was in Testament and he told this story about going to a Kiss concert as his first show, I think maybe the same year because he grew up in the in the Bay Area. And I'm just curious if you have specific memories about that show because it's such a unique musical experience and, and people experience. Do you have like, do you have memories of that show? Yeah. On the back cover of Kiss Alive 1, there is a great uh, crowd shot just kind of on the floor of a big uh, auditorium. And it was just like that. People looked like that. The air was thick with smoke, mostly marijuana. There were fist fights. There was just parading of all sorts of 
different styles and, and makeup and things. It was glorious. It was so much fun. It was a great freak show. I was terrified and I was super excited all at once. And, uh, and I was just sort of surprised too, that, you know, our parents just dropped us off and we went in, you know, like we were going to a movie or something, but you know, it's kind of like, you know, going to a wrestling match and a crazy pyrotechnic show. <laughs> Cheap Trick blew me away. They were the opening act and they oh, were wow. amazing. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that set a lot. And I enjoyed Kiss too. I mean, I was super into them as a kid and, and why wouldn't you be, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's an awesome <laughs> early experience. And, and seeing Bruce Springsteen early on, totally different, but also probably equally impactful. And in that same year, I think I saw Peter Gabriel do the security tour, which went even deeper for me, just in the way that he was embracing so many different elements of music from around the world and their styles and their sounds. And I loved the fact that he started the show with the whole band marching down the center of the theater uh, with percussion and just having a procession, you know, and that to me was outstanding. I mean, I was just I love the fact that he took that theatrical aspect and brought it uh, with such honesty and integrity. And, you know, he has that theatrical aspect kind of woven into everything he does. That's a lot of high influence shows for you as a, as a teenager growing up. So can you tell us about meeting John and how you guys came together? Sure. Uh, when I was in high school and college, I recorded a bunch at this studio called Radio Tokyo in Venice Beach. And through meeting somebody there, uh, they connected us. And uh, at the time, John was playing in Giant Sand, and they needed an upright bass player. And so, you know, they called me, and I, I met them, and we hung out at uh, the studio and just kind of hit it off, I think. And, and then we rehearsed once. <laughs> I drove out to Joshua Tree, and no one was around. They were out doing things, and I just arrived and just waited. And then right before I had to go back to town, because I was working at SST Records at the time, and I said, well, I got to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> I go, oh, shoot, we should practice. Or we got to see how you play. I'm like, all right, cool. So we did. And um, then the next thing I knew it, I was telling my my boss, hey, um, I'm going to be gone for three weeks. I'm going to Europe. And they're like, oh, no, not another one. <laughs> you and John, it seems like you guys had similar upbringings in terms of being very musical. But did you guys feel like you each brought something different even before you you formed the band together? Yeah, I think we hit it off. There was an openness and, uh, you know, a deep friendship. And we we loved playing music. We loved backing up others. We're always willing to work. And so we, we wound up working not only with Giant Sam, but with Victoria Williams. We did some sessions with Michael Hurley, with uh, Barbara Manning. We actually toured with her as well. And Bill Janovitz from Buffalo Tom wanted to do a solo record. So he called us up. Richard Buckner did a couple of great records with us in Tucson. Uh, and we were just lucky to have uh, the opportunity. And in, and when we moved to Tucson in 92, 93, there was not a lot going on. So we had plenty of time. Can you talk about Giant Sand? Because it seems like this is like a stopping point for like a lot of musicians over the years. What was what was it about that band that you liked and, and what did you learn from that experience? Well, I kind of equated it to um, playing baseball. And I always told how I said, you know, you throw your wildest pitch, you know, um, I'll, I'll be there to, to catch it or to, to help you, you know, deliver it or get it across the plate or hit it out of the park, whatever. And I would just, um, I enjoyed his improvisational openness, you know, cause I came from a jazz background where I played not only in, you know, big bands in high school, but I was playing in this free jazz trio in LA for a while and 
And so I just, I appreciated the, um, the openness in all the possibilities, but still having one foot firmly planted in singer songwriter. And he's a great songwriter and it was a lot of fun. We toured together for like 10 years. It was amazing. And John's a great drummer too. We're all big jazz fans. And so it's kind of interesting to kind of bring all those influences and appreciations all under one umbrella and then try to, to do something that is cohesive. And I think over time we found a really great groove and had a lot of fun shows and <laughs> some great memories. Even when there was no support act that canceled, we became our own support act. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, that's like touring, you know, weeks and weeks and just enjoying being out there. We kind of came up with this alter personality called Grindhog. And uh, <laughs> it was just bizarre. <laughs> it was awesome. When you and John decided to form a band did you form Calexico first before you left giant sand or was it like uh we should we should go do our own thing it was just a side project it basically it was just us uh filling up an afternoon with some um making some outgoing music messages on an answering machine that's really all it was <laughs> just having fun with with our recently found instruments at the at the thrift store or the chicago store downtown tucson or at a swap meet, you know, we bought a lot of uh, interesting gear. John, uh, he found an accordion. And so he was sort of connecting with his roots. I had my accordion that my grandfather handed to me when I, when I last saw him before he passed away. And so we had that affinity for old world instruments. He got a marimba and then a vibraphone. I got a mandolin, brought out the cello. Yeah. So we just kind of had fun kind of making up some tunes and we didn't really give much time or thought to what we were doing. And we still, when we're kind of hitting a good moment, either on stage or in a studio, we're looking for those kind of moments that are in between takes or in between ideas that kind of have uh, something special that is a wonderful surprise. Hmm. That's cool. That's a cool perspective. It sounds like you guys were like music nerds in a way of like, I mean, I just picture an apartment like her house, like just filled with instruments. Yeah. I mean, enough space and a few books and, uh, you know, some cans of uh, red sauce, pasta mm -hmm. and some strong coffee. I mean, you know, we all lived in really simple situations. We, we, we lived in downtown Barrio Viejo of Tucson, which is this beautiful you know neighborhood that's got a lot of history, a lot of soul. And uh, our landlord, John Lovegrove, uh, is an artist himself, too. He's Canadian. So we always kept the rent low and, you know, kept the beers going and we gave him free tickets to shows if he was interested and uh, supplied him with some records too. So when you're leading up to releasing your first album, Spoke, which I think it came out in 96 and then was reissued in 97, what was the sound you were going for? Because I think it, it hit people pretty hard in a great way like you know there's lots of writing trying to describe what you guys did and there's a lot of words and a lot of genres thrown in there but i'm just curious if you if you two like set out to create that sound that i guess later was called like desert noir by by some people not really i mean we just kind of were doing what we like doing and you know similar records and artists at the time were like palace brothers their first single uh, there's no one what will take care of you. That was a big influence is capturing a room sound, um, you know, early smog and Bo Callahan, um, 
uh, Vic Chestnut, his uh, his first and second record, uh, especially West of Rome, that was a big influence. We loved sort of like the old world music, whether it be Morcone to a certain extent, but he's so grandiose and he's so magical that I wouldn't want to bring him down to our level. <laughs> you know what I mean? He remains up there in the clouds for a reason. Um, and just on the pedestal is what I'm trying to say. He is now in the clouds. But um, but you know what I mean? Just some twang, some Link Ray, and uh, I guess uh, then eventually there was more sort of uh, Latin influence on the second record. I guess. I don't know. There's some songs on there like Sanchez on the Spoke album, which is sort of, it's kind of like a slow rumba shuffle in a way. Yeah. All the signature voices were in place because it's just, you know, just super simple, you know. Nylon's string guitar, uh, John's beautiful brushwork on the on the drums with his his own kind of uh, recipe for making the brushes do what they do. You know, he's got this whole procedure. But yeah, you know, it was a really low-key thing. And um, we were so comfortable just being uh, backing members to various ensembles and, and bands that it was fun just to kind of put something down and keep it quiet. I think the vocals are mostly kind of hushed because... I was too shy to sing out loud uh, to wake up the neighbors. <laughs> and I just, you know, I just wanted to make something that was, um, that felt close to home. We just started compiling some tunes. And then this label in Germany called House Music, which is no longer a functioning label, but they're still really good friends. He said, yeah, you can just give us a couple songs or you can do an EP or a 12 inch, doesn't matter. It was nice with having him as sort of, uh, you know, the one to catch everything and, and be enthusiastic and to present it all in a really beautiful and, and cared for way. Yeah. The music you guys came out with, it was it was unique. Like, I don't know that there were a lot of bands doing what you were doing, particularly drawing from all these different influences. When you put out that first album or, or even The Blacklight in 98, which I think was what really kind of got you guys in, in front of a lot more people, did it feel unique were you like we're, we're contributing something unique to the world yes and no i mean i saw some of the the reviews when my, my aunt sent me a clipping from from one of the newspapers it's great you know just that people took the time to write about a very small band that's not trying to do something big you know and i think that in itself um the fact that it's understated and there's more nuance and subtlety um, I was happy that people responded as strongly and as positively as they did because it's easier to write about things that go bang and make a big, loud sound. And we were leaving a lot of space open, both in our arrangements and also in the fact that we used a lot of instrumentals. Yeah, it's interesting because you talked about being jazz fans, and I think on those, especially on those early albums, you can you can hear the kind of jazz influence, at least in the approach, if not you know the same instruments leaving room and space, which I think is not done enough. <laughs> that, that's what Miles Davis said, right? Like you know the, the notes you don't play, sort of thing. That is a powerful phrase, and he's an incredible musician and person. And there's a lot of people like that. I mean, there's you got your Neil Youngs out there who. Well, there is Neil Young <laughs> and he does all. And, and I love his whole phrase where, you know, if you make a mistake, repeat it twice. And that way, no one will know, even yourself, that it was a mistake. You'll soon forget about it. And um, you can hear that I in his music, too. It's amazing. You can. And it can be a beautiful thing. And certain people can make certain mistakes really, really well, you know. And I think that especially with, uh, you know, just sort of the openness in 
trying new things, whether it's a live show or coming into a recording, John and I, and a lot of musicians that we played with um, and play with, we love those moments where things kind of leave the highway, you know, kind of just nobody knows where we're going. And I think the audiences enjoy that too. For sure. So when you guys started touring, like you were touring with Pavement and others, like, did you guys feel like, wow, we hit the big time? And was that a culmination of kind of like what you wanted music to be to you? I feel like it's such a storybook thing. Like you get, you get a good album, you get a hit, you go on tour. Is What did that feel like? It all felt great. You know, um, each step along the way is just an incredible hurdle and an achievement. I will never forget getting the first copy of you know, the vinyl record spoke in, in our hands. It was incredible. It was so amazing. You know, touring with 33, touring with Pavement, some of my favorite bands, I was in heaven. You know, I got to play music. I got to see and hear uh, some of my favorite bands of all time. It was profound. And, uh, and things kept going for a while, and it was sort of incredible. And so we just tried to be consistent in what we do and try to keep grounded as well. You know, John had a, his daughter Mia was born, I think in 94, right? So we've always had sort of this, you know, call to make the tours as concise as possible and make sure you come home with a little bit of money to pay for things. And, and that was always the importance. And I, I managed the band for the first period and uh, we were fortunate to work with such great labels, uh, Quarter Stick and Touch and Go Records in Chicago and City Slang Records in Berlin. And they just had a great system that we were able to just simply walk into and get shows thanks to you know all the booking agents we met through the labels. And it was kind of amazing, really. What was like one of the hardest things or the hardest thing about building a band in those years as you were putting out albums every, what, two or three years and touring? Because it's probably from the outside and, and probably to your fans seemed like you guys just like kept putting out amazing stuff and you're gaining momentum and popularity. Were there hard things and, and like struggles? Yeah, I mean, you know, risking your life uh, driving through the snow. I mean, the first tour we did with Iron and Wine in Calexico, each band had their own um, 15 passenger van hauling a trailer full of gear. And we were driving, I think, from Toronto to Detroit or Detroit to Chicago. That whole way was just super snowstorm. And, and I remember John driving, especially going to Chicago, and we were going super slow, listening to Johnny Cash's uh, latest, his last series. And nobody was sleeping and nobody was talking. We were just focused. We were driving past, you know, wrecks and semis that slipped off the road. And that really kind of puts things into perspective. So that's, that's definitely one of the hardest moments. And I think after that show and after that tour, we're like, okay, we're never doing that again. Not that the conditions, I mean, they improved slightly, but there was some dangerous moments as well with, with drivers in snowy conditions too. So that is just survival right there. But all the other stuff, you know, you can, you can manage because everyone enjoys being together. Even if you're having a bad day, people realize that and give you space or give each other space and and so we've always been able to manage and um, but you know health that's number one and then you know families relationships those are challenging as well when you're not there What's the songwriting process like between you and John and, and has that evolved over the years? Yeah, it has. I mean, you know, early on, John would have a piano idea. I said, let's work on that. He goes, okay. 
so we we would develop a song you know based on an idea he had i always have a gazillion ideas so i just i usually play him a, a couple and say which one feels good or we'll, we'll try some and then the ones that just feel good right off the bat then we'll keep those and toss the others and i love collaboration and i need it i have a little setup here right now and um it's not as much fun as being in a room with John or other musicians. It's just, I'd rather be with people making up stuff. This is jumping forward a little bit, but what have the last several months been like musically for you? Have you been still creating and doing as much as you can, or have you used it to take a break? Yeah, I uh, I asked some friends from Tucson to drive my minivan up mm-hmm. to Boise, and they loaded some instruments of mine as well as some of theirs, and we recorded an album. I rented them an Airbnb and I said, Hey, could you stay a week or more? And they said, okay. All right. Yeah. We'll get out of the heat for a while. They had their own room and bathroom. We were as safe as could be. And we recorded like 11, 12 songs. And so we're going to put that out later in the year. I think in December. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So you found a way to to collaborate even in these uh, (laughs) times. Yeah. And, you know, we all have sort of, simple devices on our phones that we can send tracks to one another. And so we've done a little bit of that. And that's how we made a full band album is that we sent a lot of tracks to friends far away, musicians that are in our band far away. And everyone returned them and it all came together thanks to uh, Sergio Mendoza and Chris Schultz. Wow. And Sergio is a member of Calexico and uh, just a great, great friend. That's really cool. So you, you talked about collaboration. I know one of the collaborations that people have been talking about a lot recently is your collaboration with Iron and Wine because you mm-hmm. most recent album was in partnership with them and two Grammy nominations. It worked out great. It was it was actually documented in a podcast, you know, because aren't new to the podcast world. What's that collaboration been like? Like what what does that bring to your band and vice versa? Oh, I mean again, you know, it just kind of reminds me mostly of working with people like uh Victoria Williams, Vic Chestnut where you just have a really strong singer-songwriter, but he's also an incredible arranger. And he's got years like some... I mean, he's an incredible producer too, really. But we partnered up with uh, Matt Rossbang, who is from Memphis. We met in Nashville to record. I had one song that was almost finished, and we just kind of had some some open ideas. John came up with an idea of like, let's just do something free. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sam doesn't normally do that on record. I mean, he has moments in his songs, but all, a lot of his songs are all uh, structured and, and based around these incredible lyrics and vocals. That's his forte. But he's got this this jazz heart, really. And he's very experimental. So it was a lot of fun working with him and uh, Sebastian Steinberg on bass, Rob Berger on keyboards, uh, John on drums, and Jacob Bellinsway that came out to play some trumpet. And it's so much fun playing with him. He's a blast. And I always learn a lot every day, every show. You know, I mean, we played in Tucson. And, you know, wouldn't you know it that Tucson, it's super hot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're playing at our favorite, you know, venue there, the Rialto Theater. And, and the air conditioning is not working to its full capacity. So people start fainting, dropping. And I'm like, what are we going to do? You know, and, and then this big guy that everybody could see was on the floor close to the stage. He fell over. Whoa. And we stopped. It was just Sam and I acoustically, and um, our buddy uh, uh, Mark Kelly, who uh, was married to Gabby Giffords, he ran down there because he's 
he's trained in all these sort of an emergency things. He's an astronaut. He's the commander, <laughs> Commander Mark Kelly, at the rescue, and and he's so awesome. And uh, he's he's fine. So he really did run down there. Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, they got him some water, and then and then the person was revived, and then brought out to get some air. And then Sam leans over to me. He goes, "This used to happen all the time on my solo shows in Florida." Follow me. You know, I got this. <laughs> and he goes, what we're going to do is as soon as we get the green light, we're just going to pick up right where we left off last. And we did. And uh, it, the song was naked as we came. And it was amazing. And people, you know, everyone was excited. We haven't talked that much about the albums, but I, I do feel like most of your albums do follow sort of a storyline. And I know you've talked before about a couple specifically being really like story driven and is that something that you set out to do with each album? Like, are you thinking about it from a storytelling perspective? I haven't always, um, but I think that sometimes the story either finds you either before, during, a lot of times after, hmm. especially with the black light. This is a, an interesting example because um, I had these songs and they were all instrumental really. And they were just ideas. And I, was, I sat by myself at night with the headphones and really got into the theme and the mood of where a lot of these kind of strange musical episodes were taking me. And I thought, oh, this could be kind of like a an extension of a Cormac McCarthy novel or something, you know? This is just bizarre. And, you know, I've just moved to Tucson, you know, four or five years earlier. And what if? And then I just sort of plugged in sort of a loose story. And that helped me in writing the lyrics for the song. Or then, you know, the next record, Hot Rail. That's a great story, too. You know, um, the story of that record is uh, at the same time of making that record, we got uh, the offer to um, do a soundtrack to a film called Committed. And Randall Poster was the music supervisor and called me up one day and said, hey, how's the soundtrack going? And I said, well, Randy, I'm I'm right in the middle of making a Calexical record at the same time. And so I've not really been on top of the soundtrack. He goes, Joey this is your next record. <laughs> I'm like, you're so right. I'm going to get right on it. And uh, it was so bizarre making two records at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a soundtrack and then a record. So there's a bit more soundtrack on Hot Rail and we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of that record. So that's kind of an interesting thing too, to look back. And then now we've recorded so much in Tucson that it's fun to, to go somewhere, like whether it be New Orleans or Mexico City, or Northern California, to like the Bay Area, and um, and set up shop and sort of tap into something there and, and make some music and both to get away and also to, to focus, but also to kind of think about where we're at as a band and as a as a planet and you know kind of put your antenna up and see what you can connect with. I talked to a lot of artists on the show about this like sense of place and and I noticed. It seems like out of the last probably five or six albums, they're all recorded in different places. And obviously that's intentional, but what is it about going to a different place to record? What do you get from it and how does that affect the music? It kind of takes you out of your, your element. You're working on different faculties and you're thinking about different things. Either you're thinking about where you are or you're thinking about where you've been. Uh, you might be missing home. You might be thinking about, uh, I can't wait to... <laughs> get out of the studio and walk down to the market and get lost. Music has been connected with the sense of travel or adventure for so long, you know, I mean, I think 
that's the feeling I got when I was a kid, when I put on the headphones and I listened to music, I would go somewhere, right? And so it is sort of that portal. And then, you know, my parents had some of those records that were travel oriented, right? Um, Duke Ellington and the Far East Suites, you know, his band goes to India or my parents would go to Mexico or New Orleans and come back with, you know, rancheras or trios Los Panchos, or they come back with, uh, you know, kind of ragtime, Scott Joplin records, all sorts of great jazz records. Um, and so there's a sense of nostalgia too, I think, with all that traveling and uh, for sure, like the fifties where there's, if you go to the, the thrift stores, there's tons of albums that are travel oriented. And I think that I kind of picked up on that. And, uh, and I think with music, it's my way of finding out, you know, who I am. And in doing that, it's a bit of finding out, you know, where I came from in all sorts of aspects, especially cosmic, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like where do, where do we all connect? And, and, and I think, so for me, like the thing called the minor blues, um, it's just something that I, I've really fallen in love with at an early age. That song, All the Pretty Horses, is a minor blues in a way. And I found music and song, mostly world music and folk music. But now it's, you know, it's everything. It's hip hop. It's everything has traces of it. But um, there was a movie that came out that I saw called Lacho Drum or Safe Journey. And it sort of documents without narration, just the music itself and picture all sorts of various uh, gypsy communities and, and music of the people that are travelers and um and it's really incredible and it goes from the east all the way to the middle east to russia and then it stops in spain with flamenco you know so for me it would have gone to uh, portugal to pick up portuguese follow it would have combined everything that's african and and gone to cape verde and then would have gone from cape verde to cuba latin america south america so on and so forth so i see sort of this common thread and I resonate with that a lot. And it definitely is reflected in your music. I think even the early music before you guys made all these, like you can tell that you guys were, were thinking about that from the beginning. What's the most um, interesting place that you've recorded? Is there one that sticks out? Havana in Cuba at Egrem uh, Studios where the Buena Vista Social Club recorded. Wow. I was a huge fan of the work that Ry Cooter and his son Joaquim had, had done with all the members of the Buena Vista Social Club you hear that room and it's a dream and it's got so much history as a studio. So I got to go there with John to back up a, a friend of ours who's a singer songwriter from, uh, from Spain, Amparo Sanchez. And she brought her uh, bass player and her pianist and I played guitar. <laughs> they had a vibraphone there that was broken. So we used a bass string, an upright bass string as sort of, the way to, to maneuver the motor on the vibraphone <laughs> to make it spin and vibrate. It was so amazing. And we got to take our partners and family with us. And it was so much fun going there. It's, you should go. <laughs> you really should go. It's just incredible. It's so close and there's so much history. And then it just stopped all of a sudden. You feel that. But musically and culturally, we've continued to feel the vibrations of this Afro-Cuban uh, experience, which is just divine. It's my favorite music. If I was to be on an island for the rest of my life and I had to choose one sort of form of music or one record or whatever it is, it would be Afro-Cuban. It's so good with with a trace guitar sort of mimicking what like a, a piano would do or something, you know. It just has so much swing and soul and it's got that Latin minor blues, which I love. It's incredible. 
And the record that we made with Amparo Sanchez is called Tucson Habana. Cool. You can hear it all documented right there. I want to go back to the storytelling part a little bit. I feel like your albums, as we were talking about, kind of do have this storyline. And, and one of your songs was featured in Breaking Bad in 2009. And to me, like a lot of your music would have worked in this show. <laughs> Did you guys, I mean, being from the Southwest and, and being in that area and the, 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 the landscapes and the soundscapes could have worked well. Did you identify with that? Like when they wanted to use that, were you like, this is, this is a fit? Yeah, I, I, I love the idea. I mean, any chance that there's a film or a project, however big or small, you know, um, I love when I get calls from student filmmakers. I think those are my favorite. Hmm. But certainly, you know, when The Sopranos calls and wants to use Minas de Cobre or Breaking Bad, uh, we're all, you know, thumbs up. It's great, you know, and I, and I get it and I enjoy it. And, and then again, I also really enjoy making music for picture. Two of my favorites is uh, a film, a documentary film called Circo, which is the first time director went down to rural Mexico Knew he wanted to make a movie, but didn't know exactly what or where or with whom. And then he saw this traveling family circus pull up and he instantly knew that's it. So we did the music and he worked really, you know, closely with us, you know, sending us comments, um, giving us direction, not just with, you know, whatever you guys do or, you know, but like, hey, why don't you go back to that electric guitar? You know what I'm talking about? You know, the one you use on the black light. Do you still have it? I'm like, yeah, I have it. He goes, bring it out. I want I want to hear that guitar. Like, okay, cool. Or something like it, you know, and um, he gave us something. And he didn't, you know, he didn't know the sounds or what to call a certain sound. So like a bowed vibraphone. He goes, what's that instrument? We go, what's well, a bowed vibraphone? He goes, that's incredible. I need some of that here. And, um, and it was really fun. We became sort of a band in a way, the way he was uh, giving us encouragement and direction. And then the other film was like, completely the opposite. It was a film called The Guard. It's an Irish Western, basically. It's sort of like uh, John Michael McDonough being Sam Peckinpah. And uh, it's just sort of a hilarious movie uh, with Brendan Gleeson and, uh, and Don Cheadle. <laughs> it's like <laughs> two just different worlds coming together in Western Ireland. And, you know, I, I have relatives there, so and I'd been, so I kind of knew a little bit of the the feel there, but it had nothing to do with the music that we were to make mm-hmm. at all. And he said, yeah, I don't want it to match one bit. So just do what you guys do. I trust you. Have fun. I want to jump to the present a little bit. You talked a lot about being on the road and now you're not on the road. You probably have had some reflections about being off the road. Do you miss it? Um, what, do you, what are your reflections on sort of touring at this point? I miss it a lot, um, but I'm happy to be here kind of working on things with moving into a new mm-hmm, home mm-hmm. and a new town, being with my family through a difficult time. That's most important. And I'm grateful that I'm not somewhere else. But I think also that I, I realized just how much inspiration comes from travel and and playing music live and being with my friends and the crew. I mean, we're all family. And so we keep in touch. We have a, a, a chat group. And just yesterday, we were kind of sending notes and videos and photos, just kind of cracking each other up from all these moments, you know, during sound checks when the, the sound technicians get on stage and are just, you know, making fun and having a great time and of course, 
they are the best performers, really. <laughs> Way better than us. When we did a tour with some members of Mariachi Luz de Luna from Tucson, you know, and we brought like four or five of them over and they were like, these guys know how to do it. I mean, they know how to rock the stage. Joey, you got to kind of learn something here. They didn't come out and say it, but I read the subtitles. And I'll never forget it. We were playing this big festival called the Lowlands Festival in Holland. Mm -hmm. And everyone has a designated slot time. And uh, some of the mariachis, you know, they didn't realize, oh, yeah, we have to get off. So uh, uh, the guitar player, Tony Pro, he had just gone over and hung out with um, Cypress Hill because he's a huge fan, right? So they're all hanging out backstage. He races in just in time. And then at the end of the set, he's, he's like, get your fucking hands in the air. I'm like, uh, Tony, I love the spirit, but we got to take it down a few notches. Our set's over, dude. We got to go. Pick up your guitar home. That's amazing. Yeah, he throws his towel out in the crowd, you know. He's like, that's awesome. They're the best. I learned so much, and I always do whenever I get to hang out with them. They're, you know, they're my brothers, that's for sure. You lived in Arizona for a long time, and it's one of the like fastest growing, most changing states in the U.S. Population explosion and political kind of shifting, and um, I, I feel like you guys have not directly touched on politics in your music, you know. But it seems like there's probably a through line there. What are your reflections now, especially as we sit here in, in 2020? I think this episode will come out after the election, but Arizona seems like this just very unique place in America over the past, you know, 25, 30, 40 years. Do you have reflections on that and kind of how your music has been altered as a result of all these changes around you? Well, Amparo used to always say to me, she goes, Joey, she goes, don't remember the South. We need our South. And I just, I love the way she said that to me. And she was addressing all those countries that are in the southern portion of the hemisphere, whether it be South America, Latin America, or where she's from in Spain. It's, you know, Spain, Italy, Greece, you know, and the whole Mediterranean. We need that soul. Tucson, Arizona, especially southern Arizona, has this history that goes back longer than we can even really comprehend. I mean, I think it goes, I mean, there are, they're finding traces more and more these days that kind of keep pushing the timeline back further. So you've got to keep that in mind. There's a crossroads there as far as uh, culture and nature and the presence of mankind and then nature and water resource. So all these things are kind of like coming together. And there is so much inspiration with um, regards to culture, in especially Southern Arizona, but also, I mean, all of Arizona, really. And before it was even Arizona, there's just ancient uh, indigenous people making so many important contributions to the planet and life and having incredible things to say with uh, keeping nature in mind and being one with nature, really. So I think that has an influence, whether you want to realize it or not, in a certain political party or politician's platform, they are surrounded in it. You can't escape it. When you go there, you're not noticing all the small little cars on the road, you're noticing the, the massive spans of sky. And I think people go there for a certain reason, and I miss it. You know, growing up on, on the coast in California, I felt like this connection in a deep way with there being the abundance of, of this horizon being flat and just blue to this horizon being sandy colors and different hues of pink, orange, and purple. There is sort of a connection, and I think that Politically, I'm, I'm happy to see that there's more changes that are, hap that are happening. And um, I imagine that there will be more of that to come. It's going to be challenging 
because of the resources that are limited there. But I think that people that are there, and I consider myself still a Tucsonan because I still have all my stuff there. <laughs> I still have to go back. I'm waiting for the, the time to be safe to go back, but I might just have to go sooner than later. But I think that you know we will continue to be thinking about Arizona. And we're so rich because we're neighbors to one of the most amazing countries ever, Mexico. When I first moved there, I felt like I was like in some of the my favorite places in Europe where there's like this confluence of many different cultures and people are speaking several languages and there's just great food all around. Everyone's winning, right? And people are celebrating. And there is that a lot in Tucson and especially Southern Arizona and more so now in Phoenix and definitely in Flagstaff. So I think that things are changing and music is, is important. And we're just all sort of contributing to that dialogue, which is we all need each other. We're all related. And, um, Let's party. Let's have some good food and music. I didn't realize when, when we played Phoenix, Arizona in probably 2003, that we were making any sort of political statement because it wasn't our intention. But just the sheer fact of us, you know, coming from different backgrounds, bringing our friends from Mariachi Luz de Luna, who are either Mexican-American or indigenous and Mexican-American. We all still, you know, love the same same things and and uh, there was a writer from the Arizona Republic who made a comment like, hey, if only our politicians could be as open-minded, maybe we get a lot more things done around here. And I've reflected on that in certain songs, but I try not to do it in a real simple way. I try to do it in a poetic way. If you were to give uh, the Joey of 20 years ago any advice, what would you say? Just listen to your heart. Like I would tell anyone you know, who's starting out with anything, whatever, follow your desire, uh, your passion. Help out others, you know, get to that as soon as you can, because by giving to others and donating your time to great causes or individuals who are in need, you're really doing yourself uh, just a bigger favor. And that's what I've been doing these months uh, in the fall is just trying to help out others online, whether just writing direct messages to people who uh, are concerned about, you know, where things are going in regards to the pandemic or in regards to elections and whatnot and politics and all that the world encompasses, you know, just, hey, we're together. You're not alone. I feel the same way too. I have the same concerns and worries, but you make me feel better. And I'm glad if I can help you feel better today and just be in that moment and go moment to moment, day to day. That's awesome. Thank you for that. And thanks for taking so much time. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun and, and listeners stick around. You'll hear some music. So Joey, thanks so much. I hope you have a good rest of the day. You too. Always a pleasure. And now here's Joey and Sergio playing Cumbia de Donde, Hear the Bells, and Service and Repair. All right. This is Joey of Calexico. We're going to try this out now. Let's see if this all works out. <laughs> Two, three, four... Get there. 
called Service and Repair. Are you ready, Sergio? Yes. 
doesn't take much time for plans to go astray chase another ghost of a Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 